Thanks for tuning in to listen to a sermon from Red Hill Church. We exist to glorify God and make disciples by sharing the gospel and sharing our lives. You can find out more about Red Hill by visiting us online at www.redhill.church or by searching Red Hill Church on Facebook or Instagram. We hope that today's sermon is encouraging to you as you try to follow Jesus in everyday life. Thanks again for listening. We hope you enjoy. Open up your Bibles to the book of Malachi. We're going to be uh, picking up in chapter 1, verse 6, all the way through chapter 2, verse 9. Just to remind you, my name is Janet Reams, and it is, again, just such a blessing to be here and read God's Word with you this morning. All right, here we go. Starting in verse 6, chapter 1. A son honors his father and a servant his master. But if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is your fear of me, says the Lord of armies, to you priests who despise my name? Yet you ask, how have we despised your name? By presenting defiled food on my altar. How have we defiled you, you ask, when you say the Lord's table is contemptible? When you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is it not wrong? And when you present a, present a lame or sick animal, is it not wrong? Bring it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you or show you favor, asked the Lord of armies? And now plead for God's favor. Will he be gracious to us? Since this has come from your, hand, from your hands, he will show any of you favor, asked the Lord of armies. I wish one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would no longer kindle a useless fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of armies, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from the rising of the sun to its setting. Incense and pure offerings will be presented in my name in every place, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of armies. But you are profaning it when you say the Lord's table is defiled and its product is, its food is contemptible. You also say, look, what a nuisance, and you scorn it, says the Lord of armies. You bring stolen, lame, or sick animals. You bring this as an offering. Am I to accept that from your hands, asks the Lord? The deceiver is cursed, who has an acceptable male in his flock and makes a vow, but sacrifices a defective animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of armies, and my name will be feared among the nations. Therefore, this decree is for you priests. If you don't listen... And if you don't take it to heart to honor my name, says the Lord of armies, I will send a curse among you, and I will curse your blessings. In fact, I have already begun to curse them because you are not taking it to heart. Look, I am going to rebuke your descendants, and I will spread animal waste over your faces, the waste from your festival sacrifices, and you will be taken away with it. Then you will know that I sent you this decree so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of armies. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave these to him. It called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing, was, and nothing wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and integrity and turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should desire instruction from his mouth, because he is the messenger of the Lord of armies. You, on the other hand, have turned from the way. 
You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have violated the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of armies. So I, in turn, have made you despised and humiliated before all the people because you are not keeping my ways but are showing partiality in your instruction. The word of the Lord. All right. Well, thanks so much, Janet. We're, uh, con- we're continuing through the book of Malachi. And for those of you who uh, weren't able to be here last week, just as a way of reminder, this is, uh, this is post-Babylonian exile. So the Israelites were sent off into exile in Babylon, and uh, they were there for a while, and the Lord brought the exiles back with all these promises about good things that were coming, that shepherds were going to bring their sheep and lay them down in the pasture, and everything was going to be great, and there was going to be blessings upon blessings, and the people of God have gathered together, and they're in this tiny place. It's a, a really small area. 200,000 Israelites are left. And they're really kind of a little bit ticked off at God. I know none of you have ever felt that way. Like, God, it's not what it's supposed to be, and this stinks, and it's kind of your fault, is kind of how the Israelites are feeling. They're really, really upset with God, and they feel like they have been cheated out of the promised blessings. There's supposed to be good times. There's only bad times. And so Malachi receives a word from the Lord, and Malachi presents this in sort of the Socratic method. The Lord says this, and then you say this, and then the Lord says this, and then you say this, and the Lord has this against you, and you say, why do you have that against me? And the book kind of bounces back and forth like that. And this morning we pick it up, and it's a word directly to the priests. The Lord of armies is speaking once again, and he says, a son honors his father, and a servant his master, But if I'm a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where is your fear of me? Says the Lord of armies to you priests who despise my name. Now, I think we have a pretty good idea of what honor is. It's when we defer to someone greater than us. And that deference causes us to act and speak in a way that is different than how we normally would. It's sort of like when you were a kid and the preacher was coming to your house or your grandparents were coming over and your parents were like, clean up, put on a nice pair of clothes, like straighten up, don't talk back, sit down, be nice, be kind. Or when I was in elementary school and the superintendent would show up, our teachers would have us walk down the hallways, not normally like human beings, but they would make us put our middle fingers on the outer seams of our pants when we walked. So we had to walk like this because the superintendent is in the building and we're going to honor him. We're gonna show some respect to him. We're gonna defer to his greatness and it's going to cause us to adjust how we're acting. God's saying, if you say that you honor me, why is it that you are not, in fact, honoring me? And if we're supposed to be related or if I'm supposed to be your master, where is the fear of me? And it's important for you to know that when we hear about the fear of God, like in Proverbs, it says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The idea is not that we would be actually afraid of God, Uh, for fear of a capricious nature. To be capricious means unpredictable. Like you're gonna walk in the door and you don't know if dad is gonna be furious or generous. You're not supposed to fear God in such a way that his actions are unpredictable. His responses to your behaviors, unpredictable. The fear instead is supposed to be a sense of awe. 
that's driven by love and intimate knowledge. I know who this is. I know what they want, and what they want matters to me. When I was a sophomore in high school, I got invited to my first party, and so I went because it's like, awesome. I'm an extrovert, and I love parties. I like being around people, and people like being around me, and the ones who don't, I never really hear about it because they just sort of go away, sometimes in a huff and sometimes not, but I like parties, and so I go to this party, and at this party, there was a thing that was happening that I had never observed happen before. People were passing around milk jugs, actual milk jugs of alcohol, and someone had brought something called a keg, and everybody that was there out on my, my, my friend, my acquaintance that I was friendly with, because uh, I don't want to actually call him a friend, not because I disliked him, but we just didn't really do stuff together. He owned some land out in the country, and everyone was partaking, and I was invited to partake, and I was observing the behaviors of the people that were partaking, these friends of mine and these acquaintances of mine, and they seemed to be out of their ever-loving minds, slobbering, throwing up, not aware of how they were being treated or what was happening around them, and I was like, this is supposed to be fun? And my friends were like, you should have some of this with us. You should partake. And can I tell you, it was fear of my parents that prevented me from doing it. Not just that I knew there would be a consequence, which I did know for sure there would be a consequence, but because also I knew I was responsible to carry their legacy, to carry their name, to represent them everywhere I went. And Every kid knows the worst thing that your parent can say is not something out of anger, which is awful enough, but when they look at you in an immeasured way, they say, I'm really disappointed in you. You know how I feel about this, and that just didn't matter to you, and I wanted, like, this is an important thing to me, and I wanted that to matter to you more than the opinion of your friends. That's what fear is. It's to look at God and to say what he cares about, what he wants for me, what he wants from me, what he expects out of my behavior, what he desires out of my worship, what he thinks about life and me and what I'm doing. That matters to me more than everyone else's opinions, not just because he can swiftly bring down the hammer of justice, but because I know him and I love him and he is the most significant and important part of my life. It's why one of the marks of discipleship at Red Hill is a life that's oriented around the love and mission of God. What we're saying when we say that our lives should be oriented around the love and the mission of God is that we should fear him. Those who are wise fear him. In other words, those who are wise understand that the path to the blessed life the path to the greatest life, the path to the most purpose-filled, significance-filled, peace-filled, joy-filled life is living as if God was here with us observing all of it and we said what you think matters more than what anybody else thinks and I'm gonna live in that kind of a way. And God is saying to his priests, we're supposed to have a family connection there's supposed to be honor that's given to me as the father. There's supposed to be fear that exists, reverential awe that exists because of who I am. And the people 
nothing, nothing like me and how I interact with God whenever I'm throwing what can only be described as a hissy fit. You know what I'm saying when I say a hissy fit? It's what, it's what I did at Walmart whenever I was a little kid or probably actually Kmart, you know, the blue light special. Back in the day, that hit different, y'all. That blue light would light up. It's like, get to it. Get to aisle 13 now. You know, like you're in the cart and all of a sudden it's like F1. Your mom's driving that thing like she's got to get somewhere real, real quick, fast, in a hurry. It's throwing a temper tantrum. I'm not getting what I want. So God says, this isn't what it's supposed to be. You're not honoring me. You're not fearing me. And Malachi offers up what the people are going to say. He says, yet you ask, how have we despised your name? Can I tell you what is a dangerous game to play? It's a dangerous game to ask a question when you don't really want the answer. That is a dangerous game to play. If you walk up to someone and you're like, do you want to fight? And you don't actually want to fight, but they do actually want to fight then you probably should not have asked that question. You know what I'm saying? It's like if you walk in and your spouse has this real bad look on their face and you, and you ask, did I do something wrong? You wanna think before you go with the question. You wanna consider your own self before you enter into the conversation. And Malachi's like, I know what you're thinking. How have we despised your name? And we're gonna dig into the details here of a sacrificial system. We don't live any longer under the Old Testament law of sacrifices. But for a moment, I want you to imagine the situation and the scenario that was reality for the Israelites. You came to worship today. Many of you probably listening to Maverick City music or talk radio or you know, maybe, maybe something good or something terrible or nothing at all on the radio. When the Israelites would come to worship, they would quote back and forth to one another the Psalms of Ascent. You can look in the Psalms, the latter part, and the, the caption above the Psalms of Ascent say Psalms of Ascent. And as they were going up to worship, they would recite the Bible back and forth to one another. And we're like, all right, well, they got us beat. You know what I mean? I'm not that good of a Christian. I came in this morning and was listening to some music, but I wasn't quoting the Bible back and forth to anybody. And then when they came, they also had to bring sacrifices. And it's the priest's job to take the sacrifices and make the sacrifices. And so if you can imagine everybody walking in with birds and sheep and a variety of animals, that then me and Stephen and Josh, as your elders, have to sacrifice and we're gonna burn them. I mean, I'm sure the fire department's gonna have something to say about it, but even if they didn't, the mess that that's gonna make. I mean, the awful mess of the sacrificial system, the amount of blood and guts that's everywhere all the time. Um, it's, it's an incredible situation, right? And what was supposed to happen is you're supposed to bring your best. So if you're poor and you couldn't give what the prescribed amount was, it's sort of like doing CrossFit. You can't do the RX version, that's okay. You know, we have a modified version that you can do. When you show up, you just give your best, but that's not what was taking place here in this particular instance. The answer comes back by presenting defiled food on my altar. Well, how have we defiled you, you ask? When you say the Lord's table is contemptible, when you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is it not wrong? And when you present a lame or a sick animal, is it not wrong? Bring it to your governor. 
Would he be pleased with you or show you favor? Asks the Lord of armies. Priests were accepting less than what God required. People were bringing stuff in and the priests who were supposed to be the mediators in between God and man, they were supposed to be God's representatives. They are coming to the people and the people are presenting these offerings and the priests The reason that he's talking to the priest is because the priests were saying, this is okay. We're gonna go ahead and accept this. God's fine with this. And maybe it's because the priests were fed by the offerings that were presented at the altar. So maybe the priests were thinking to themselves, you know, it's better to get something than nothing at all. And if we can say it's better to get something than nothing at all, then surely God will say it's better to get something than nothing at all. And this is sort of what we do quite often, what the world wants to do quite often, is God will say, thus saith me. Here's the standard. Here's what I want. Here's the expectation. Here's what I think everyone must do. And if I think everyone must do it, Everyone must do it. And then we will go, well, did the Lord really say? And isn't it better, like if I can't give what I said I would give, isn't it better for me to give a little something than nothing at all? And maybe you're thinking, Raiden, you just literally said if you can't give what you're supposed to give, then you can give a little bit and God will accept that. That's very true if you cannot But if you make a free vow to the Lord, I will give this, and then you give less than that, you don't get to change the rules just because the game doesn't suit you. You don't get to say, God is saying to the priests, you don't get to say, I'm worried about starving, and therefore I will accept less. And God, quite honestly, I really think this is going to be okay because at least the people are still moving towards you. But what you and I sometimes, and apparently what the priests failed to recognize, is there's no such thing as almost obedient. There's no such thing as almost holy. If my parents told me clean my room and I thought really seriously about it and I went into the room and I was like, it's doable. And I hid some stuff under the bed and my parents came in and looked at what I had done. I would not in good conscience be able to claim I had been obedient. That's the issue that's at hand. The people are saying, God, it's not fair. Life is hard. You're not doing what you said you would do. You're not making good on your promises. You've not created this land of abundant peace, this land of abundant blessing for us, and we're supposed to be your people. And God's like, yeah, you're not doing what I told you to do. You violated the covenant. You walked away from the blessing. You walked away from the peace. You walked away from the joy. And the people and the priests are saying, yeah, but you should still bless us. You should still give us what we want because we're your people. And you're supposed to be nice. You're supposed to be kind. You're supposed to just accept it. The people wanted grace and they wanted favor, but they wanted it on their terms. That is no different than me. That's no different than you. And that's no different than the world that we live in right now that wants to say, surely 
a merciful God would not, and then fill in the blank with whatever the sin du jour is. Whatever it is that's on our minds, whatever the cultural milieu is saying should be acceptable. Surely a merciful God wouldn't punish that. We don't get to change the rules. We don't have that kind of authority. And God is saying, I set out the standard. Priests, you violated the standard. And even worse than just violating the standard, you've endorsed it. You've said, God does accept this. You have deceived people into believing they can do something less than what I said and still receive my favor and still receive my blessing. And how does God feel about it? It says in verse nine, and now plead for God's favor. Will he be gracious to us? Since this has come from your hands, will he show any of you favor? And by the way, the obvious point that is being made is, I will not show grace to you. You don't need grace. You need repentance. I will not show favor to you. You don't need favor. What you need is contrition, brokenness. If my kids are doing something that I know is harmful to them, that is harmful to their future, that will in the end devastate them, I am not a kind, a loving, or a good father if I bless them in the doing of that thing. In fact, what I'm teaching them is, I actually like you liking me more than I love you. It's actually more important to me that you think well of me than that you have the life that God wants you to have. In other words, it's really actually just about me and not about them at all. God's saying, I couldn't do that to you. I actually love you. I couldn't bless you when you're in the depths of sin. You know why? You'd stay in the depths of sin. When I was in college, I rolled my ankle real bad playing intramural football. And uh, one of my buddies was in physical therapy school and I was belly aching about the pain of it. They put like this like boot on that like compressed and released and compressed and released. And I was like, man, if we could just get rid of pain, my life would be amazing. He said, actually, if you got rid of pain, your life would be terrible. You would chop off your arm and not realize that your arm had been chopped off. You would have all kinds of sickness and disease. If you started bleeding or you broke something and you couldn't feel the pain, then you would not know how to respond to the problem. It could cripple you for life or kill you if you weren't aware of the problem. This is what God is saying. I'm not gonna show you favor. I'm not gonna give you grace. I'm not gonna bless you. You're not in a position to receive any of those things and you don't actually want any of those things. What you're looking for goes beyond those things. It even goes beyond permission. You're looking for an endorsement of rebellion. You're looking for an endorsement of your sin and I'm not gonna do it. I'm just not gonna do it. In fact, for those of you who think, well, a good God and a nice God and a kind God, he would never take something like sin all that seriously. Surely he'll be nice in the end. Surely he'll be merciful in the end. And surely all he is, is mercy and kindness. He is that, but not in the way that you think. Here's what he says in verse 10. <clears throat> this is crazy. Wish one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would no longer kindle a useless fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of armies, and I will accept no offering from your hands. Shut the doors. The temple was where people came to meet God. Shut the doors. Don't come in here anymore. The fires that you're lighting are useless. 
worthless, pathetic. I don't want them. I don't want your offering. In fact, I am not pleased with you. I will not accept an offering from your hands. And he doesn't just say, I will not accept an offering from your hands. He says, I will accept no offering from your hands. I will accept no offering from your hands. The only way that the people of God could enter into fellowship with God, the only way they could be made right with God was by presenting offerings. And God says, I will not accept an offering from your hands. So what are we supposed to do? What does God want from me if he doesn't want offerings from me? And thankfully, the psalmist gives us the answer. If you flip backwards to Psalm chapter 51, it's not just here, by the way, but this one's a pretty clear one. Psalm chapter 51, verses 15 through 17. This, by the way, was written by David after Nathan the prophet had confronted him about Bathsheba. If there's ever a time when you should go make an offering, when you feel like compelled to go do something for the Lord, it's when you get caught in a real nasty sin. You know what I'm saying? You're like, I gotta do something to make up for this. And what does David say in verse 15? Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and a humbled heart, O God. I'm not gonna accept an offering from you. In other words, you can't live as if you belong only to yourself and then enter into a worship experience and think that by singing, serving, giving or praying, you're buying your way back into God's favor. That's the point he's making. I can't be bought by your offering. I don't need your offerings. I don't want your offerings. Shut the doors, put out the fires. I'm not gonna accept anything from your hand, but I would accept something from your heart. And what's the big deal about all this? I mean, what is, what is actually the big deal about all this? It comes in verse 11. My name will be great among the nations. He says it over and over and over again in the book of Malachi alone. My name will be great among the nations. My name will be great among the nations. God's name, it means his character, his true identity, the truth about who God really is. It's gonna be great among the nations, not meaning popular like Taylor Swift and the boy who plays a game that she's dating currently, I guess. All right, there's not as many Swifty fans as I thought there might be in the audience. I misjudged my crowd. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about being popular. He's talking about the blessing of the whole world, bringing Eden back. God's kingdom as it exists in heaven coming down to earth making all things new, making it as it was supposed to be. That was the point, that his name would be great. Everything is better. Everything is better. Everyone is better when God is known and worshiped for who he actually is. Everything is better when God is known and worshiped for who he actually is. God is like, I want all of it to matter 
I want it all to be significant and important. When I was nine years old, I got my first ride on a four-wheeler. And I'm telling you what, you've never known joy. Like a nine-year-old kid getting on one of those little bitty, like gas-powered four-wheelers with the thumb throttle. You know what I'm talking about? My, it was bright orange, right? And, I, and my uncle, he's like huge dude, football player in college, set a bunch of records, he puts the helmet on me. And I'm, I, just, I can't wait. I'm so excited to enjoy this machine. Picks me up. He puts me on the machine, right? And he leans over and he's like, okay, right here. I'm like, put your hands here. I've got the helmet on. And I'm, I mean, look, I'm 47 and I'm still pretty twitchy. You know what I'm saying? I'm still like a bundle of energy. If you can picture me at nine, it was just like, just like buzzing all the time. And then you put me on a four-wheeler, a machine. This is my first experience of true autonomy and power. I mean, raw, unmitigated power. He puts me on this thing, picks me up, sets me on it, puts my hands on the handlebars. He leans over and he's like, okay, right here, this is the throttle that you push that with your thumb and that's how you go. And y'all, I'm not kidding. I dropped the hammer. Boom. And I, I'm in the front yard at his house. It's a pretty big front yard, but it's still just a front yard. And I am driving around on this thing and I am elated with joy. This is the best experience of my whole life. And then a strange thing happened. I realized that I don't know how to stop this powerful beast that I am now riding on. And so I got scared. And what do you do when you get scared? You lock up. That's what I do. I'm like, huh, I'm, I'm freaking out, man. And so I'm driving this thing around and I'm like, I don't know what to do. This machine, I guess I just, like, this is where I live now. Like, I'm just gonna die here. And I'm driving around and I don't know how to stop it. And I'm freaking out. And so I do the only thing that a, a mindful, thoughtful, nine-year-old boy can do. I drive it straight at the big tree in his yard. Giant, giant tree. I drive this thing straight at the tree and the front wheels go up that tree. The bike flips over. I'm laying on my back, the four-wheeler on top of me. It wasn't, it didn't have positive traction, so just one wheel actually spun. And that one wheel is just going, because I'm still freaked. I'm holding down the throttle. And my uncle, he walks over and he goes, and the brake is here. <laughs> this is what we like to do. God is like, I love you and your sins are forgiven. And we're like, let's go, boom, hit the throttle, full bore. Because we didn't stick around long enough to actually get to know him. We got the small piece of inspiration the small piece of information that our heart or our ears wanted to hear, and then we bolted. And then when we got freaked out, we were like, this isn't cool. You didn't give me enough information. You're, you didn't, this is supposed to be a great and wonderful experience. And God is like, yeah, it's not just all throttle. Sometimes there's joy in slowing down and hitting the brake a little bit. It's a lot more fun when you get the whole story. And it's a lot more fun when you have that whole story, when you have all the information and you operate it as it's supposed to be operated, when you live life the way that God has ordained for you to live it, when you make good on the vows that you have made with him, when you live in accordance with his will, and even when the hard times come, 
you find that there is a different kind of experience in those hard times, it's better. This is the point. It's better. It's better. Among the nations, my name will be great. Who I really am will be significant and carry weight among all the nations of the earth. If you were to look back in Genesis chapter 22 and verses 15 through 18, you would see that when God's talking through his covenant with Abram and Abraham as he would become, he says, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Why did it matter that the priests were accepting less? Well, it mattered because it was disobedience to God which then, of course, means God has to pour out, instead of blessings on his people, he has to pour out curses on his people. So he cannot bless his people the way that he desires to bless his people. And by the way, what's the point of blessing his people? What is the point of God pouring out blessings upon us that we might just have like a really great life? The point of it is that people would discover what it's like to be loved by God and to love God. How is it that through Abraham, all the nations of the earth are supposed to be blessed? The answer, of course, comes through Jesus. And through Jesus, all the nations of the earth are supposed to be blessed. And how does that happen? Through the spreading of the gospel. And the spreading of the gospel is so much more than just saying, you're a sinner, but if you'll ascribe yourself, if you'll believe that Jesus died on the cross, then you get to go to heaven. That is the gospel, but that's not all that is the gospel. Because life's still hard. We still need hope. We need some people who are in it with us, who lock arms with us, walk side by side with us, trudge through the bad times and celebrate the good times. Learn how to love past failure. Learn how to love past betrayal. Learn how to love past woundedness and hurt because everybody loves their friends, Jesus said. What profit is that? But if you love your enemies, then the world's gonna stand up and take notice. And they're gonna say that's an altogether different kind of person. Everybody goes through hard times. Everybody goes through difficult days. But not everybody experiences the same way. This is the point that God is trying to make, that when you are a part of that family, it's different and it's better. And I am blessing you that you might bless others. The blessing is supposed to have an effect upon us and that effect upon us is that we are supposed to become a cause. So he causes a blessing to fall on us and the result is that we are supposed to cause a blessing to fall on those around us. That's the point. Israel was not supposed to be an insular community that just looked in and only thought about and loved itself. It was supposed to be a light to the nations because God wanted to be great among the nations. And what happens to churches? Why do churches die? I don't know if you've ever been a part of a church that was declining or a church that was dying. I have. And most of the time, here's what happens. They turn inward to protect a culture that exists on the inside. Instead of turning outward and saying, let's create a culture that benefits those on the outside. The church is the only organism or organization that exists 
for the benefit of the people who are not part of it. So we remove every hindrance that we can because the stumbling block of the gospel is hard enough. Having to put faith exclusively in the life, the death, the sacrifice, and the resurrection of Jesus, that by itself is hard enough. Let's take away everything else that could get in the way. God is not going to accept what is unacceptable. He's not going to do it. (laughs) He goes on and he says, but you're profaning it. You're taking this thing that's supposed to be sacred. You're making it something terrible. You're profaning it when you say, the Lord's table is defiled and its product, its food is contemptible. You also say, look, what a nuisance. And you scorn it, says the Lord of armies. You bring uh, stolen, lame, or sick animals. You bring this as an offering. Am I to accept that from your hands? Ask the Lord. He's not saying that they're like bragging about it. Like, because the Lord's altar is profaned, we can give whatever we want. He's saying the way that you're living is saying what you really believe. The way that you're acting, it betrays what you really believe. And I'm not gonna take it and I'm not going to accept it. I'm I'm not trying to show you, he says, I'm not trying to show you who you think I should be. I'm gonna show you who I really am. He says, the deceiver is cursed who has an acceptable male in his flock and makes a vow but sacrifices a defective animal to the Lord. For I'm a great king, says the Lord of armies, and my name will be feared among the nations. When we talk about giving at Red Hill, uh, it's a little different than how some churches do it. We actually don't talk about it all that much, but we're gonna get to it in Malachi, so we might as well just you know, pop, the, you know, pop the lid open on it a little bit here. One of the things that we say pretty frequently is, um, it doesn't matter to me what you give. It matters to the Lord quite a bit what you give. And even more, it matters what you keep. But you should give, Paul told the church in Corinth, you should give as you have determined in your heart to give. And you should give it joyfully and cheerfully. You should give generously because God loves someone who gives generously. And here's part of the issue that God has with his people right now. He says, you have something you vowed to give and you're not giving it. You told me you would do this and you're not doing it. That's the issue at hand. You said you would and you are not. I'll be great among the nations. Not I'll be who you think I should be among the nations. Not I'll be who you wish I was among the nations. I will be the great I am. I will be who I truly am. (laughs) It says, therefore, this decree is for you, you priests. If you don't listen, if you don't take it to heart, if you don't honor my name, says the Lord of armies, I'll send a curse among you and I'll curse your blessings. In fact, I've already begun to curse them because you're not taking it to heart. Even the good stuff is gonna be bad stuff. Take it to heart. In other words, don't fake it. Don't come in here and be like, oh, we're super sorry, God. Here's the animal that we said we would give you. Is everything okay now? God's like, I don't need that lamb. I don't need that dove. You think I can't make another one? I can make another one anytime I want. God doesn't need you to come in here and go, look, God, I'm giving you this much money because of how much I love you. Take it to heart. Take it to heart. That's what he's saying. If you don't take it to heart, to honor my name, 
I'm going to send the curse. In fact, he says, look, I'm going to rebuke your descendants. Listen, kids, if your parents aren't loving Jesus, pray for them. Because it might fall on your heads. There's consequences for sin. I don't know if you guys know that or not, but there are consequences for sin. There just are. There are consequences for sin. Grandpa, grandma, they live in our bones. There are consequences for sin. Take it to heart. From a heart level, love, honor, serve the Lord. He says, this is crazy, and I don't really know how to say it other than just to say it. People are like, you know, God would never in the end punish someone for their sin. He's just too nice. God says, look, I mean, this is, this is like, I'm picturing my mom right now. Look, you know what I'm saying? Look, look, I'm going to rebuke your descendants and I will spread animal waste. Animal waste. I will spread animal waste over your faces. Oh my goodness. You guys, I talked about the sacrificial system. I, I'm not a hunter. I have friends who are hunters. I'm not morally opposed to hunting. It's just, I've never done it. I didn't grow up in a family that did it. I had friends that did. And they're like, you know, what we do is we hang the deer upside down and then you gut it and all its guts just pour out. I'm like, its guts pour out? They're like, yeah, you don't want to get that stuff in with the meat. I'm like, I don't know a lot about guts, but little ones, I'm sorry, but that's where the poopy is. And some translations will say, I'll spread the awful, O-F-F-A-L, over your faces. Some of you have a different translation than that, and your translation says, I will spread the dung. That's the poopy. Over your faces. God is saying this to his priests. Like, oh, you're, you guys are fine with this? You're fine with doing less than what you made a vow to me that you would do. And by teaching people, God's not actually holy. He doesn't actually pay attention. He's not watching. He doesn't know and he doesn't care. Here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna take the very worst part of that very worst thing that you gave. I'm gonna take the worst part of it and I am gonna literally smear it all over your faces. You're gonna wear it publicly for all to see. And we're like, well, surely God wouldn't do that today. And then we see a famous prominent pastor whose sin is discovered, whose whole ministry is invalidated, and everybody knows the worst part of the worst thing that he did. God's like, I'm gonna take it and I'm gonna rub your face in it. That's intense. That is intense. That's intense. That's, that's a father who loves you and who is going to prove the point. If you keep sticking your heel in the ground and trying to prove that you're stronger than your heavenly father, that you're right and he's wrong, you have to understand there is no length that God will not go to to demonstrate his love for you. There's no length that he won't go to to prove to you who he actually is because it's bigger than just you. It's the redemption of humanity that's on the line. His name will be great among the nations. He says, then you'll know. 
<laughs> then you'll know that I sent you this decree so that my covenant with Levi may continue. Then you'll know. Then you're gonna know so that my covenant with Levi can continue. And what is the covenant with Levi? What does that look like? There are some words that he uses. He says life. It's a covenant of life. It's a covenant of peace. It's a covenant of reverence. It's a covenant of awe. It's a covenant of truth. It's a covenant that's based in repentance. And God wants you and me and the people of Israel to experience these things. Why would God react so strongly to sin? Why would he have such a reaction to sin? Haven't you ever had anything precious? that was treated as if it was common by someone else. And you're like, don't ever do that. Don't ever do that. Never do that. This is important. This is precious. I want this to be preserved. I want this to endure. I want this to be prominent and important and significant and unbroken. And God says, why would I do all of this? So that my covenant with Levi could endure, so that there could be peace, so that there could be life, reverence, awe, truth, and repentance. That's my plan. You're trying to thwart the plan and I can't let you do it. I'm not gonna let you do it. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge. People should desire instruction from his mouth. He says, you, on the other hand, have turned from the way. You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. You violated the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of armies. So in turn, I've made you despised and humiliated before all the people because you're not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in your instruction. You're not keeping my ways. So why does life have to be so hard? Is what the people of Israel are saying. It's what the priests are saying. Why is this not, like, it's not fair. You haven't given what you said. And God says, here's your answer. This is why it's not happening. Being an Old Testament priest carried a lot of blessing and it carried a lot of responsibility. You're the, you're the representative of God. You're the one who's bringing people back into right relationship with God. What a huge responsibility. You are literally the emissary of God, telling people you're made right and this is how you're made right. And now you're absolved. Everything is good again. The Holy of Holies, only one priest goes in there. It's protected and it's private. This is the Old Testament priesthood. It's so significant. It's so important. And I know what some of you maybe are thinking right now. I'm really glad that I'm not Raiden, Stephen, or Josh. Because that sounds intense. That's why you don't sign up to be an elder. Well, there are a lot of reasons to not sign up to be an elder, but I have really bad news for you. We don't live in the old covenant anymore where there is a hierarchy of priests and where there are people who stand as the mediator between you and God. In fact, if you flip over to 2 Peter chapter 2, some of you are like, I don't really want to turn there because I don't want to find this information out. Too bad. Starting in verse one, Peter says, therefore rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit. Excuse me, it's first Peter, not second Peter. Therefore rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. And like newborn infants, uh, infants desire the pure milk of the word so that you may grow up into your salvation. If you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built 
to be a holy priesthood, you yourselves, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then you can flip down to verse nine. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And don't miss, followers of Jesus, you are a royal priesthood, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And if that wasn't convincing enough, you could flip back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and starting in verse 16, Paul says, from now on then, we do not regard anyone from a worldly perspective, even if we've known Christ from a worldly perspective. Yet now we no longer know him that way. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, He's a new creation. The old's passed away. And see, the new has come. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That's the ministry of a priest, reconciling people and God. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. He says, uh, everything is from God who's reconciled us to himself through Christ, has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. What's the appeal? He says, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What does that mean? That means that if you are a follower of Jesus, then you are a royal priest. Because when you became a Christian, you made a vow with God. You know what the vow was? You know what the covenant was that you made with God? You know what we say about it? Not just I'm, I'm subscribing to some abstract belief but I'm giving you my life. My life is now yours. Romans 12 says that we're to present our bodies as living sacrifices. And I have a friend who used to say, you know, the problem with a living sacrifice is it has a tendency to want to crawl off the altar when the fire gets hot. We've made a vow. I'm giving you my life. That doesn't mean everyone is supposed to become a vocational pastor it means that everyone is supposed to consider themselves a recipient of God's blessing, favor, family, love, mercy, forgiveness, peace. And as a recipient of that, we are supposed to be a cause of proclaiming the excellence of that. We are supposed to be the ones who now carry the responsibility of making his name great among the nations. How do we do that primarily? How do we do that? Two simple things, God said, love me and love each other. And Jesus said, this is how the world will know that you're my disciples, by the love that you have for one another. And how is it that we love one another? We show up for each other, we serve together, we give together, we pray together, we sing together, we suffer together, we struggle together, we grieve together, we celebrate together, we mourn together, we weep together, we win together, we do it together. And you're like, yeah, but some of you, 
Raiden, are really annoying. Yeah, imagine how annoying you are to Jesus. How annoying were the disciples to Jesus? How frustrating must it have been for Jesus to have to love Judas, knowing that Judas was going to betray him? How difficult was it for Jesus to be on the cross asking his father to forgive those who were crucifying because they didn't really understand what they were doing? In my GP, we were talking about... uh, Uh, Jerry did a a devotional for us this last week on the parable of the soil. We were talking about how the soil that is hard, you throw seed on it and the seed just bounces off of it. He made this great point that, that we should have someone that has hard soil that we are putting seed on that soil because we're not called to be soil inspectors, but seed scatterers. And then we started talking about how does the ground become hard? And the answer is, it gets trampled on. It gets trampled on. That's how it becomes hard. That's how people become hard. The way that we win is we win together by loving each other. And when we start to wander away, we put our arms around each other and keep drawing each other back. We refuse to give up. And when we fail, not if, When we fail, we remember the covenant is a covenant that's made by Jesus, the broken body and the spilled blood. That's what makes us right, not our perfection. That's what makes us right. So when we come to the table, when you come to the table today, you follower of Jesus, it's a declaration of Jesus's death. It's a proclamation. It's a reminder of how you are made right. And so you repent and come, that is the covenant. Don't allow yourself to be handcuffed by shame. Don't allow yourself to be immobilized by regret. It's a covenant of repentance. It's a covenant of endless mercy because it's found not in us, but in Christ. And that is supposed to provoke in us, not a set of actions that we think will please God, but a heart that says, everything I have, everything I am, it belongs to you. And when you're in love, there's no such thing as a sacrifice. Everything is a joy. Let's pray together. God, I'm asking you to send your spirit to speak the words that I don't have, to take a text that feels distant and maybe uh, abstract and to, to magnify Jesus for us to make him big and to bring him close, to help us see our sin for what it is, a deep and grievous offense. And thank you that we don't have to bear the shame and we don't have to bear the iniquity and it's not by our stripes that we find healing that Jesus himself bore that for us. You're our father, Help us to honor you, to live in awe of you, to have a holy fear of you, and to enjoy the blessings and the benefits that come from being your covenant people, making your name great among the nations. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this week's sermon. We hope that you're encouraged as you go out to face life and follow Jesus. And don't forget that you can find out more information about our church, our beliefs, and what's happening at Red Hill by going to www.redhill.church. Thanks again.